0: Hi, everyone. and Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom still here today with Timothy J. Whalen, CEO of MLG Capital, a real estate investment company that has been helping investors grow their wealth through private real estate investments for over 33 years. MLG is diversified across several markets and asset classes, including multifamily, office, retail, and industrial properties. In today's episode, we discuss how Tim went from tax manager at the Big Four to CEO of MLG Capital, his thoughts on the office and retail space, where we are in the current market cycle, the future, tax strategies, the two ways to invest in MLG, and much more. Hey everyone, I wanna let you know that we'll be hosting the first ever Tax and Legal Virtual Summit specifically for real estate investors coming up Saturday, February 29th and Sunday, March 1st. At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from the top legal and tax experts in the industry. Topics include the real estate professional status, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you work so hard to build. Head over to www www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. See you there. Tim, thanks for taking time to come on the show today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey from tax manager at PwC to CEO at MLG Capital? Uh, sure. Happy to share. I, I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, decided my wife and I went to head
2: out to California. So I transferred to the Waterhouse office of California uh, and then uh, I came back to Wisconsin in 1988. So it's been a couple of years. Uh, but when I came back from uh, Price in San Francisco, I came back to the Milwaukee Office of Price in 1989. And MLG was my client. Uh, I was a tax manager at the time. And uh, they were a young, budding company, only about 10, 10 guys on the team. And uh, anyways, they didn't have strong financial back, and uh, I ended up joining them as one of them uh, junior partners, and been a great ride for the last you know thirty plus years. But the concept of having great knowledge in the real estate industry, as well as being great knowledge in, in the uh, income tax elements of investing, has been very powerful for our firm. Now today, we have seven CPAs on staff. You know, four attorneys. We do a lot of complex tax stuff. There's a ton of estate tax types of things as well that you can do in income tax planning. So very powerful to bring the two elements together on one team overall. Uh, it was kind of funny when I came from San Francisco to Milwaukee, and it's just kind of a funny story. So when I walked into the MLG and I was, I was in a manager price waterhouse, they slid across the table a shoebox of about 15 checkbooks. They had no general ledger. Uh, they had a bunch of real estate guys doing some real estate deals, and they didn't have a lot of structure. And... Uh, I thought this is crazy, you know. But uh, long story short, I got to know him and, and I joined him. So it's been a fun ride, you know. Today we're up to over 420 people in our organization, up from 10 when I joined them you know, 30 years ago, and and a couple billion in acquisitions. And we you know we manage roughly 20,000 uh, apartment units today, and and uh, very active on the buy side. So it's
1: been a, it's been a great ride. But just to confirm, you're no longer doing the shoebox receipts method. <laughs> We we have a general ledger. I mean, my,
2: my CFO is an old Arthur Anderson guy. My controller is an old Deloitte Touche guy. Our reporting is, you know, over the top. But it's fine. It you know, I came from San Francisco. I had some pretty heavy clients, and I worked, like, on the Mondavi account. And I healed some Packards and some some pretty heavy clients. And I came back wow. to the fund. It was actually my first meeting in Milwaukee, and I, one of the partners brought me out to this meeting with these MLG guys. And Excited across the table, the shoebox of checkbooks. I mean, are you kidding me? You know, this is you're talking a guy from Bryce Waterhouse. I built a couple hundred bucks an hour back then, and uh, it was nuts. But anyways, it was a, it was a great start.
1: But I bought the Bruce sky, and it's been a great run. That's great. That's great. Well, our listeners are very well attuned to multifamily. We get a lot of multifamily folks that are on here. I know that MLG invests in multifamily, also invests in office and retail, as well as some industrial. Can you tell us and our listeners? Why are you diversified across those asset classes, and do you have a current asset class that you really like? Sure. Well, you know, in general, for us,
2: real estate's all about the basics of supply and demand. So whether it's apartments, industrial, office, or retail, it's, you know, what's that issue of demand-supply balance? So we're looking for smart real estate investments in all asset classes. The beauty about private real estate, it's a very fractured, fragmented marketplace, many players involved in it. And what happens is you tend to have human error that comes into the mix of private real estate investing. And it's our job to source those opportunities where somebody's maybe making a mistake or maybe they haven't captured the opportunity to create value. So we're we're attracted to all asset classes. We have our bias, about 70% of what we do is multifamily, you know, 15, 20% industrial, and a little bit, a little bit of office, a little bit of uh, a little bit of retail. But you know, ultimately it's about finding those opportunities where we think we can grow the operating income of an asset uh, and doing things to create that that growth in operating income. Because if you grow operating income, you're going to grow the value of the asset and you're going to make good money for your clients. Um, So we look at all asset classes, but you know, there's, there's, there's opportunities and challenges in each asset class. If you look at an industrial today, roughly 95% occupied, very solid asset class, but it's really hard to find deals to buy. Our focus, we like to buy existing assets with existing cash flows. I'm not looking to take development risk. Uh, you know, we do lower leverage than most real estate guys for 60 to 65% leverage. But, you know, our, our classic, you know, for example, I do like right now, we just bought an in in Ohio area. It's about a million and a half square feet of industrial product, but it's older stuff. It's not pretty, but we can make good money on it. And so if you take a market that's roughly 97% occupied, which is the market is, and, you know, we have a, a tenant, 100,000 square foot tenant, rents a 275 a foot, there's no place to go. The hundred thousand square foot tenant new rents are six dollars a square foot. So we move the rents from two seventy five to three and a quarter, and you pick up fifty cents a square foot. Which is almost a twenty percent value pop on that square footage. So there's opportunities out there, and you, you know it's needles and haystacks, and you got to really got to look at a lot of stuff. I was just talking to my team today over lunch, and we've already looked at roughly two hundred deals in the first forty five days of the year. And so it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of grinding through detail to find those opportunities where you can make money. Um, would you like me to bounce through a little bit office and retail? Kind of my viewpoint on office and retail. i love to hear it. Okay. So, on the office side, you know, multifamily is roughly 95, 96% occupied nationwide. Industrial is roughly 95% occupied. Office is roughly about 90% occupied. In my belief in the office space, what I'm about to say is a generalization. Everything I say is a generalization. Real estate is still a local market. So, you got to drill, drill into Each asset class on a very local basis, but in general, the office you have the problem. I call it the the CEO ego problem, where if a CEO wants to build a new office building, they build it. It isn't it isn't necessarily that they need it, or there is an office space to go rent, but they want that new sexy building, so they build it. So you have this systemic supply creation issue in office that will consistently create, I in my viewpoint, excess supply versus demand in, in overall places. We have had some good. You know, uh, job growth and the good demand growth on the office side, but you're still sitting at 90% occupancy. And it really gets back to the supply creation many times when the market really doesn't need it overall. It's because somebody wants that new sexy building. But you still can make money in office. We bought a, um, a deal up in Minneapolis called Quadrant. It was 40% occupied in a market that was roughly 90% occupied. We only paid roughly $40 a square foot to buy this asset, but we took from 40% occupancy to 90% occupancy. In about three years' time, and you know, we sold for ninety-two dollars a square foot. They buy for forty, put twenty bucks into it, you know, for sixty, and sell for ninety-two. So you make you can make money in office, but it's a really tough asset class to make money in, mainly because the high cap X, you know, out of your operating profits, there's a ton of turnover costs, and costs of uh, tenant improvements have gone, grown dramatically over the last couple of years, and uh, it's just a hard asset class to own. So office, it's all about. You know, find a problem they can fix. Buy the asset, fix the problem, sell the asset. We are not long-term holders of office, never will be, and it's a fool's game, in my opinion. The cap rates that office sells for do not generally deal with the high capex element that you have. And again, there'll be exceptions. If you got great credit, you got long-term leases, you got phenomenal location, there are exceptions to what I just said. But in general, that's, that's how we view office uh, retail. I, I bet if I ask you guys a question. And what you thought the retail percentage is and occupancy, you you probably missed the market on what what retail's at. Maybe you already know. But you know, industrial's 95%, multifamily is 95%, office is roughly 90%. Retail, and, you know, Brandon, what do you think?
1: What do you think retail is nationwide? Oh, uh, I was hoping you were gonna call on Tom first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I would say uh eighty. It's ninety-five
2: <laughs> percent outside the money oh. space. And and what people forget is you know, if you look at what Amazon right Big impact on retail, right? But Amazon still represents 5% of the retail marketplace. In the last 10 years, you had population growth roughly 7 tenths percent per year. So in 10 years' time, you've had population growth of 7%, which in general correlates to retail demand roughly 7% as we have more people buying stuff. And so you have a situation where demand continues to grow, but supply growth has been very limited in retail. So you have very little stuff being built, but you still have this continued growth in population. It continues great demand. Uh, are there challenges in retail? Big time. There's big time challenges in retail because tenants' needs are changing dramatically right now. And so you're going to have a lot of turnover costs. So as tenants come and go, as concepts fail, new concepts are born, you're going to spend a lot of money dealing with those tenants coming in and out. So for retail, we typically look to buy vacancy in a great location. So, for example, there's a deal called Pewaukee Plaza. which is actually our hometown of Wisconsin. Uh, it's a suburb Metro Milwaukee we bought a, 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 a retail shopping center of 25, it was like actually 10% occupied, but we bought it from the banks for, you know, 25 bucks a square foot. Banks are historically poor, poor operators when it comes to managing real estate. So we took that asset from 10% occupancy to basically 94% in one year's time. You know, we did the parking lot the facade, and it was in a great location. There's no reason the asset shouldn't have been leased up. It just had poor management because of the financial struggles that the asset went through. And again, the lenders are not great, um, not great asset managers. So you can make money in office, you can make money in retail, but you got to be careful. And I, we would never buy, we don't buy stabilized office. We don't buy stabilized retail because the high cap X element is eventually coming to get you in general. Again, there's exceptions, phenomenal locations. You know, we got great long-term leases, great credit, but in general, it's a tough asset class. You can
1: make money in it, but it's a tough asset class overall. Fascinating! Thanks for going through all of that. So you were talking about office space with the high occupancy rate, and then you were you kind of like joked about CEOs having that ego problem, and maybe they're, it's not a joke at all, and it's probably actually not a joke. It's probably one hundred percent true. I guess my question to you would be: given that like technology is advancing so quickly, and I mean we run a virtual CPA firm, right? We we don't have an office. Given that technology is advancing quickly, do you ever see a time where like the CEOs drop the ego and they go virtual and then office space isn't as hot? Or do you think that it doesn't matter? There's always going to be that aspect to it. People will always want an office space or clients will always want an office space. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, you know, there's, there's some statistics that are out there. And I'd say in general, if you look at the average square foot office space per employee, that's been dropping. It's dropped maybe 10% here in the last, you know, six, seven years. So I think when it drops, it, was like 200 square feet per employee on average down to like um, only like 180 square feet per employee. So it is dropping. There's a trend there, which obviously is a demand negative, right? My personal opinion is personal touch still matters and relationship building matters. And also I think it's going to be a blend of technology. I think you're going to, you're going to see virtual offices. You're going to see hoteling where people share a desk, you know, maybe people don't have an assigned desk and they come into the office and they grab the desk that's open and they have a spot for the storage stuff. But I'm still a big believer in getting eyeball to eyeball with people and that relationship building. I think it's very real in business. And I don't think it's going away because I think that relationship side, ultimately people want to do business with people they like and have a relationship with. And I know I, I have eight kids, so I understand the concept of people texting all the time and they talk to somebody that have a great conversation texting and never talk on the phone or never talk face-to-face. But in general, I do think that face-to-face thing does matter and will matter going forward, but it will impact demand to a
1: degree. All right. So for all of our clients and potential clients that are listening to this right now, you can just ignore that last sixty seconds. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I think that you're right on the money. Well, something that I wanted to ask you though—you mentioned hoteling. I've always wondered: is the the WeWork concept, and maybe not WeWork itself, but uh, the concept of building a co-working space? Does that tend to perform better over time compared to just leasing it up with triple net tenants or ha- have you seen any sort of trends or information there? And this is just a me being selfish right now. So you know, I mean, the truth is, I don't know a, a lot about the statistics, the Regis concept.
2: We work, I don't think the we were concepts that dramatically different than Regis. No, they would probably beg to differ and um, they do it with cool vibes. That's oh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> but my guess is Regis will grab some of that and copy some of that. But in any case, I think there'll be a blend. I mean, obviously, the world's changing for activity, changing the ability to create a new business and be in business in a nanosecond. And you can create a business and you can be on the internet and you have a website and, you know, you can use things like WeWork for space and you also get some maybe interpersonal, you know, connection with other people sharing the WeWork space. So I think it's got the, space, the concept's got a lot of validity. Again, it's another factor that may impact the demand side of, of office space, the concept of sharing. So it will have a demand impact on office overall, and and the concept has got validity, I'm not sure the valuations that the market was put out there are real. But in any case, it's 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 certainly a valid concept, a good product.
0: That's good to hear. It's good to hear. So before we jump into the different ways to invest in MLG, we do understand there's two different ways to invest. Just kind of want to get your take on where we are in the current market cycle, what you think the future holds in store over the next few years for real estate. Sure. Well, I mean,
2: real estate, we've had a big run the last seven years, right? And, you know, again, each asset class is a little different than some nuances in each asset class. But we're in a fully mature market. Valuations are fully priced. And the easy money where all bolts get floated up, well, you could buy anything you wanted in 2012, 13, 14. If you didn't make money, you were making some serious mistakes. It was hard not to make money buying in that cycle. But the reality is most of the time in life, we're in this environment where it's fairly stable. I mean, we're, we're relatively balanced supply and demand. And I talk in you know, retail you know, industrial and multifamily, all that 95, 96% occupancy range, office 90, you're in a relatively stable environment. If you look at the construction numbers, we're pretty balanced in supply growth versus demand growth. And there's pockets of exceptions on a localized basis. But as a general thumb, we're pretty stable. So right now, the disciplined approach to real estate investing is much more critical. You're disciplined how you approach it. You know, we, you know, managing risk is important. Uh, you know, we like to keep our leverage lower than most guys. Our target leverage is 60 to 65%. That most people invested us and made their money, not looking to lose it. You might make a little less on an IRR basis, but lower leverage is, I think, a very valid thing to consider in this environment. Now, we've been lower leverage since 2012, I and mean, it's been our philosophy all the way along. And we still have fund one and fund two hit 20% IRRs at that, those leverage points. But, you know, managing the risk is important right now. The other thing is everything we do is focused on. Um, a proactive strategy to grow operating income. But, the, you know, the market's tough. It's a fully mature market. And, you know, you, you can't expect, you know, like I said, we hit 20% rate of returns on fund one and two. You know, right now, I mean, it's more realistic to be at 12 to 14%. But that's, those aren't bad. I mean, it's still 12 to 14%. You know, those are good returns. But it, it's a different market. You know, you have to look at a lot of stuff and you have to have a strategy that allows you to see opportunities
0: hundred percent. So, you know, it's funny along those same lines, I was working with a client just yesterday, actually, and they're looking at a lot of deals, a lot of different syndicators out there and they're seeing really aggressive underwriting. And what I mean by that is the cap in order to get the projections that some of these syndicators are, 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 are touting these days is there, you have to have the same cap rate today as you would four or five years from now. And of course, there's a lot of people out there who think that you know four or five years from now we might not have cap rates as low as they are today. So I guess you know my question to you is you know how is MLG underwriting these deals for the future? Are you writing and, and taking into account a higher cap rate upon exit, or? Sure. Well, I mean you know big
2: picture um, you know our goal is all about growing operating income. The cap rate said, in general we typically assume a cap rate maybe 50 basis points above where cap rates are today just as a cushion. One thing on that. My belief is that cap rates are more driven by debt constants, meaning your combination of interest and principal payments. And as long as there's plentiful debt available, especially right now when get interest-only debt, it will keep cap rates low. Um, and even you know, for example, ten-year Treasury moved to roughly three uh, percent a couple years back, and you know today with ten-year Treasury sitting about one point six percent, so maybe your margin you're adding is you know two percent. So you know what happens is rates go up the margins out of the index for it, the 10-year treasury goes down. So even though the 10-year treasury might go to 200 basis points, your interest rate might only go up 1% on your debt. And then on top of that, when you're paying off loans, your debt constant is a function of principal and interest. And so that you might only be about 70 basis points different in your debt constant, even though 10-year treasury is up 2%. You go from 2% to 4%, you might only see about a 70 basis point differential in your debt constant. And so to me, the debt counts is the big driver of cap rates. And so a move from two to three is not as that that impactful. A move from two to four, it's not 200 basis points. It's probably only 60 or 70 basis points because of your debt constant. But it's also impacted by availability of interest-only debt, You know, the leverage that lenders are willing to do. You know, Obviously, if you're able to do max leverage and 80% leverage, which a lot of real that guys do, that's going to help your returns look better. But in general, availability of debt is... To me, a bigger driver of cap rates than necessarily what happens even with interest rates. Uh, so it's a combination of interest rates and availability of debt is what will impact cap rates. But my personal belief is we're in a systemic multi decade scenario of lower rates. Look at what happened around the world and the negative rates in Europe, you know, all the ballooning of all the balance sheets of all the, all the governments it'd be very expensive for the government to have higher interest rate costs because they have to pay more on their budget deficits. So my belief is we're fighting the, the boogeyman out there is deflation. Deflation hits our economy. We have serious issues, and they're going to do everything in their power to avoid deflation. So I, that just keeps me in the belief that we're in a long-term, multi-decade of low rates. Uh, something could happen, but you, imagine the Armageddon with higher rates and defaults on loans. If you start having deflationary cycles, and asset values start dropping, you know, you think, you know, 2009 was bad. We'd be right back and square that. So in any case, and if that happens, rates are going to plummet back down again. So in my viewpoint is we're in a systemic low rate environment, uh, kind of like Japan has been the last 20 years. But we still consider a 50 basis point raise in cap rates just to be uh, conservative. That was uh, on
1: term. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You, you use some terms that I want to make sure that our listeners know what they're talking about or, or, or what, what you're talking about. So, can you explain uh, briefly what basis points means and debt constant means? Sure. So, if, if, if just like you're buying, you're buying your house,
2: right? If your interest rate is three and a half percent, and you're borrowing hundred thousand dollars, three and a half percent times a hundred thousand dollars is thirty five hundred dollars of interest expense. If you're paying principal off too, let's say your your actual loan payments equal 5% or or 5,000 per year. That's $1,500 of principal payments, $3,500 of interest expense. So your debt constant would be the 5%. The combination of interest and principal and your interest rate being 35 and and your debt constant would be the 5%. So it's that debt constant, which is a combination of principal and interest is what drives cap rates in my view. And then real quick, basis points. Oh, so basis points... um, if, I, if my loan is 3% or 4%, the difference between 3% and 4% is 100 basis points. So each one hundredth of a
1: percent equals a basis point. So 100 basis points means going from 3% to 4% on your loan. Is there a reason that, that and this is just me being selfish again with a sidebar question, is there a reason that, I think have never asked this before, is there a reason that people use the term basis points instead of just saying 001 Who knows? Oh my gosh, you know, it's years and years of the
2: industry and it's really more about, it's a Wall Street thing, right? And all the Bond guys, Uh, that's probably the big, I mean, that's where it birthed from. So who knows what? (laughs)
0: Okay. So it's just want to confuse the average person. Of course. So sh- shifting to MLG, um, we know there's two different ways that you can invest. You can invest in a traditional you know, private equity fund structure where you'd invest as a limited partner. And then you also have a dividend fund where instead of being a limited partner and getting a K-1 at the end of the year, you would be getting a 1099 div. And there's a lot of reasons for doing something like that. Would you be able to just walk us through the different tax treatments of each? Sure. Well, you know, a big picture, this is
2: one of the benefits of having seven CPAs on staff and being able to bring the sophistication to the private real estate investing overall. But anyways, two, two buckets of the way to invest. So when we talk about the 1099 dividend fund, and then we have the traditional main focus, LLC, the LLC will give for taxable dollars. I'm, I'm saying not retirement accounts, not foundations, not nonprofits. But for taxable dollars that you're investing, that are in the retirement bucket, and if, you're, if you are an individual that uh, has one of the higher income tax rates, so if you're paying max tax rates to the government, whether you federal fed and state, you're better off generally in the LLC structure because that's going to give you maximum income tax benefits uh, investing in private real estate, and especially the way we approach it. But there's a downside, though. The downside, for example, on our funds, we, we're investing in you know, 10 to 15 states. It does require multi-state um, tax filing. So if you're investing a smaller amount of money, there's a burden to completing multi-state tax returns. And if you have a CPA doing the returns, they might charge an extra 200 bucks or 300 bucks or 500 bucks, depending on the firm, for each state return they have to do. So there's a tax burden that has to be considered when doing that, uh, investing in the private real estate side. So anyway, so in general, it can be very powerful. The tax benefits, in in, in our viewpoint, for for a guy that's got, or a guy, men or women, that's at the highest tax rates we think we can save them about one5 to 2% and increase their aftertakes rate of returns by one5 to 2% per year just because of the way we approach our investing and bonding with tax benefits with real estate. So, And that's real. But, again, you have to be investing enough money and, and to overcome the burden of multi-state cost, multi-state finance uh, overall. So shifting over to the 1099 dividend fund, that is a product where we put a non-traded REIT People invest in REITs on the stock market, right? Then you have the public REITs. This is a non-traded REIT that's not available in the public markets that we put that non-traded REIT between the fund that's investing in real estate and the investor. And by doing so, it takes rental income and converts it into dividend income. And by converting it into dividend income, you avoid multi-state filing. You also avoid something called UBTI, unrelated business taxable income, which all that means is in return accounts, if you have... Taxable income from real estate, but that finance real estate, you're supposed to be following a tax from paying tax on that income. Many people ignore that, but that doesn't mean it's the right result and uh, what you're supposed to be doing. You have foundation endowments as well, if they're nonprofits Our uh, tax free insurance company. The non traded REIT allows them to avoid UBTI, avoid the taxation issue that you would get if you invest in a retirement account through a traditional LLC structure. So it's very important from a tax planning perspective for retirement accounts and investing. It also, if for a guy investing, a man or woman investing, a smaller amount of money, if they invest in a non-traded degree, they also avoid the multi-state filing issue because you're getting dividend income and you're
0: not getting business income,
2: i.e. real, real estate rental income.
0: Guys, So that makes sense. So basically, if you're, you know if you're investing in a retirement account, you would want to go the 1099 div route. Um, if you're absolutely, and if you're also if you're if you're investing a lower amount of money, I would imagine the costs associated with those extra tax filings might not be worth you going the LP route. But if you have a large sum of money, if the higher tax brackets, going the LP route would be the better way because of the tax advantages that are inherent in that structure, and uh, you would you would be able to kind of the costs for the multi state filings would be less uh, cost prohibitive to you, I guess, at that point. Yep. 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 So anyways, it's, 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 it's a
2: mathematical situation based on hired a great guy like Brandon here to help you
0: with your tax advice and uh, tell you which one makes the most sense for you overall. So so just two quick questions on there. The uh, first one is, uh, do you have to be accredited to invest in these funds? Uh, for, for the MLG funds, the answer is yes. You have to be accredited, which means that you have
2: a net worth of a million dollars, excluding your home in general. If you have a, a trust vehicle, which is Uh, Your vocal trust, that trust has to have $5 assets. in assets. That net worth test, you can have a $5 million farmer complex with $5 million of debt having zero net worth, and that entity is accredited, that trust is. So it's an asset-based test uh, for that, or if you have an LLC that's investing, uh, the LLC has to be accredited, or
0: every member of that LLC has to be accredited individually that's part of that LLC. Got it. Got it. So one more question for the MLG funds. Are these, you know, when you create the funds, you said, you know, it's the one entity that owns the real estate and then the other entity that would be the, the investor entity. Are is it, is it one fund that owns the real estate that you have two different ways to invest in the same fund or are they separate funds for the 1099 div individual investor or the, or the LP side? Um, it's one fund that owns all the real estate. And then above that one
2: fund, there's two parties that own that fund. It's the non-traded uh, 10 and 9 dividend fund. That's uh, all the folks from their current account bucket. And then it's everybody else that's taxable money in the LLC. So the, the non-traded uh, Greek uh, side owns part of the of the fund, and the rest of the fund's owned by the LLC structure uh, with, with taxable dollars in general. In fact, we won't ex- if somebody gives us a subscription to invest in our LLC uh, from a repair account, we will not accept that subscription. We say we won't accept that in a... And our ten nine dividend fund because it's the right decision for those folks.
0: Agreed, agreed. Okay, just you know, as, as a tax professional uh, coming from the tax background, what would you say your top two to three tax strategies are that you would recommend?
2: Sure. So
0: you'd be amazing when people in our industry don't
2: do this, but cost segregation studies are big. Uh, the ability to take a purchase product, when you buy an asset. When we buy cost segregation study means when we buy an asset, we're buying a carbon complex. We go value every little piece of that apartment complex. We actually hire a third-party engineer for service to do that because we want to have a report that we can point to if we ever get audited. That's a that's a valid report. But for example, you know the dishwasher, the the stove, the all the appliances, you know anything on the property. We we value the parking lot. The parking lot's worth a twenty year life, you know, versus the the building is worth you know the you know, twenty eight years, and so on and so forth. So we bust that purchase price apart. And a bunch of smaller parts that have shorter depreciation lines that allow us to depreciate on a faster basis or expense, under the new expensing rules, uh, expense, you know, we'll go that in as well. So very powerful from an income tax perspective. For example, in our fund last year, a fund for a fresh million-dollar investment, it's going to see probably a $500,000 loss. Even though we're sending out, you know, 5.5% payment of cash, you got zero Tax income, in fact, five hundred grand negative on a million-dollar investment in 2019. So very powerful, very dynamic. There's a key element for folks in, in passive loss rules um, that, besides the cost segregation studies, to be powerful for the high net worth person that's got a high tax rate, they need to have other passive income to be able to use that because the passive loss rules limit your ability to use that. Because MLG has a philosophy of being willing to sell assets, a lot of risk guys will promote buy and hold, hold that asset forever. But the reality is if you're willing to buy an asset, create value, sell it, create passive capital gain, that passive capital gain will allow the use of passive ordinary losses. For example, $100,000 of passive ordinary losses, and if I trigger out a past 100,000 passive capital gain, that's net zero to your tax return. So your tax income goes up by zero, for those two numbers. However, when you do your tax return, the 100,000 ordinary losses that are passive can offset your, your salary. If you're making 400 grand a year paying the highest tax rates, that can offset that ordinary income at the highest tax rates, especially if you live in California or New York where the rates are really high. Uh, and then the cap gain piece is that cap gain rates. So you pick up that differential rates depending on your personal situation. You know, it could be 17%, 15%, 20% differential on 100 grand, which is 20 grand for free from the government. It's a free 20 grand.
1: Uh, just by being willing to do that. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on prior podcasts too. So, you know, what we're talking about here is cost segregating a property, taking 100, now 100% bonus depreciation. And then if you are a real estate professional and you materially participate in your aggregate rental activities, then you can invest in MLG. You can aggregate that activity into your own rental portfolio, your own rental activity. And that loss will now be considered non-passive. And that non-passive loss can be used to offset W-2 income, other business income, and things like that. But even if you can't qualify as a real estate professional, you could still be investing in these types of deals, generating passive losses, and be investing in other deals that are generating passive income or they're liquidating property at gain and the passive loss from this new investment can offset that gain. As long as it's all in the passive category, you're good to go. Now, Tim, Tim, you, you mentioned that you guys are not a buy and hold fund, which is great. Because I was going to ask you, how do you guys kind of approach depreciation recapture Uh, A lot of our clients are, that's typically what they're concerned with, especially when we're working with fund owners or uh, syndicate owners, deal sponsors. You know, we take the approach of, unless you are like buying and selling an asset within two years, you should generally get a cost segregation study done. And your job is to just tax optimize the deal every single time, which means cost segregation study, regardless of whether or not the bulk of your investors can claim it, even if one person can benefit greatly from it, then do it. Um, So that's kind of like our approach is always tax optimize the deal, but that always leads to, well, what about depreciation recapture on the back end, right? If I buy a $10 million property, my bones depreciate $3 million of it. My basis is now seven. I could sell it for $10 million and you would think that that's break even. But since my basis is 7 million, I've got a $3 million gain and that's called depreciation recapture. So how do you guys? are you guys just churning assets, um, kind of like on a timetable? And so you've got new losses to offset prior gains or, or how do you guys approach that? It's a blend. I mean, typically we're holding assets. We tell
2: people expect six to eight years, but the reality is typically in three and 10. I mean, a you know, bell curve around six to eight, but you know, the race by the last typically three to 10 years. So, with that time rate, you're going to get the, you know, the time value money side. So at the worst case, it was time value money. But you know, as time goes on, then what is that firm market value you know, five years from now for that asset you, you expensed? And that becomes a question of fact that that time, which impacts the recapture amounts overall. And you have to have some consistency in your approach. So, you know, if you're spending too quickly, the benefit of cost segregation will be diminished. But if, again, if we're buying stuff and selling stuff, and we're buying new stuff, the new stuff can offset the recapture when it does happen, you know, overall. And in fact, we had that fact pattern this year, in our fund uh, fund three this year, we sold an asset, triggered a fair amount of 12.45 gain, appreciation recapture, but we had plenty of other losses the way offset that, and we still produced a, a material loss, you know, to the group as a whole. So again, the longer you hold, the more impactful the cost the studies are, but the picking up the, the interest rate, the tax rate differential, creating cap gains, or if you already have other passive income,
1: you know, that, that passive income can be very powerful. I know you just threw out 1245 under your breath real quick, but that that's honestly pretty impressive that, and I know you, I know you were a tax manager at PwC, but you're still, still on top of all that. and You can, you can cite the code. So uh, that, that was a code site for anybody that's listening. That's exactly what that was. Uh, so, very impressive, Tim. Um, well, yeah, th- and, th- and that's a good point on the time value of money piece, too, right? Like, the whole point of doing a cost like study is to get that tax savings and reinvent, ideally, reinvest the tax savings. And you've got the rule of 72 just back of the napkin, right? If I get a 12% return, I'm going to double my money every, sing- every uh, seven years, I think is what it is. So, I get the tax savings, I hold for seven years, I've doubled the tax savings, and yeah, I've got depreciation recapture on the back end. And even if I don't do anything to mitigate that, I still come out way ahead where I was at the very beginning. And that and that is definitely a, a part of that time value money concept.
0: Before we move into the last few questions here, we just want to ask you what's next for MLG? You know, first of all, you know, it's important that we maintain and do
2: what we've been doing, which is you know, 30 years of discipline in real estate buying and being smart in deals that we do. It's important that we anybody can create a performa that the numbers are great. But are the other assumptions believable achievable? Uh, you know, you know, Thomas, you said earlier, about some of these performances that people see, like what are these assumptions? They're crazy assumptions, super aggressive. You know, half of what we do is we invest in other real estate guys, right? So we have a very unique sourcing strategy in that we invest in other real estate guys as well as our own deals. And so we see some crazy assumptions come our way, or crazy max leverage. And, but it's got to keep on, you know, doing what is, you know, smart, disciplined approach to the real estate. We are working on some great creative stuff. Uh, there's a lot of wealth transfer that's gonna be happening in real estate in the next couple of generations, next couple of decades. A lot of folks will fully depreciate real estate. The traditional, you know, sell and trade into a 1031 transaction and some triple net deal, I think that's many times a very poor decision. And so we are, we are coming out to the market with a, a product that's gonna allow people to contribute their real estate to a fund versus sell it, and so they can avoid the whole concept of selling and buying and trading another asset uh it on the code section at 721 fund where we're contributing assets to our fund and uh, avoiding taxation as well. So anyways, there's some um, cool things ahead and um, a lot of opportunity. You know, we're here to serve our clients and, and help do them wise thing. And just like, you know, your firm is doing, we try to help your clients do good things with their money
0: and be smart about taxes. Uh, you know, we're trying to help them be smart about their real estate and smart about taxes at the same time. That's awesome. And that's, that's amazing. And that's one of the good things about MLG is you have those two, those two ways to invest, which I find, you know, absolutely exciting, especially for the people who have to deal with UBTI. I know that I hate having to deal with that with four people. So that's definitely great. Uh, last question before we wrap up, what is the, your favorite piece of technology or software you're currently using in your business? And I'm still a numbers junkie and I love Excel. I mean, you know, with
2: Excel, you can model out the future and people like use Argus, which is a great tool as well. But, you know, I'm, I'm an Excel junkie. My team, I, my analyst team that runs all the numbers. But, you uh, know, I love the Excel product and what we can do. You can, you know, you really can have a view into the future overall. And also, I mean, there's some great, you know, technology tools for just client relationship stuff and client management. And a combination of Salesforce. We also are using Juniper for our, you know, our, our back-end investor reporting and keeping great reporting available, you know, real-time 24-7 reporting. Of all kinds of reports, easy access uh, to all their investments with us. So, again, making private real estate uh, easy, sophisticated place to invest. We're trying to make it a very investable asset class for people and taking some of the complexities and difficulties out of it, and, you know, even in our funds. You know, we're trying to build a diversified fund for folks that, that has great due diligence. We have beat up all the sponsors' performance to make sure that the numbers are real and unbelievable, achievable assumptions versus being out there on your own trying to do it. And it's really hard for most people to do that effectively because they don't have the talent. Well, maybe they do, but very few people have the true talent to, to look at stuff. So anyways, I um, love the softwares and, and the technology to make us a better firm. Mean, we, we're really big on technology, the things that we do, even on the asset management side. We have some pretty cool stuff we do to you know, watch what's happening on the assets you know, on a daily and weekly basis. So uh, technology is very powerful
0: for productivity for us. Absolutely, as it is for our firm here. Uh, Brent's big on tech, too. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about MLG, want to learn more about what MLG has going on, or perhaps they're interested in potentially investing in a fund, uh, how can they learn more about that? Well, go to our website,
2: mlgcapital.com. Uh, we have a ton of material on there, videos, podcasts, articles, uh, a ton of material. Um, MLG is like Mary Larry Gary. It was Moody Stage Group in the old days. I bought them in the, years, years, in the past couple of years, but... MLG Capital, uh, and, you know, talk to my team. We have a lot of very approachable people that are, you know, we're Midwest folks. You know, we're pretty easy to talk to and talk to our team. You know, don't be afraid of picking up the phone. I know this, the next generation, Jay, loves to be on their, the Internet and just sending messages over and emails. But, you know, pick up the phone, too. I encourage you to talk to people. And uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no dumb question, you know. Uh, ask questions.
0: Absolutely agree with the phone thing. Pick up the phones and get on the phone call people. Don't always hide behind the desk. Don't always hide behind the keyboard. Pick up the phone and contact people. But thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I uh, really appreciate you you sharing the knowledge and letting, us, letting our listeners know about MLG. And uh, we'll be releasing it very shortly. All right. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. Bye.